Welcome to the Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 54, Continuous Improvement in the Growing Organization with Marco Koenige. Marco Koenige found himself suddenly in a very difficult position. He was in a company that was growing rapidly, much more rapidly than they expected. He found that his lean skills uh, from his Greenbelt training really helped him be a better leader, a better manager, and really manage what was happening in that growing company. But you shouldn't hear about that from me. Let's hear Marco tell his own story. Marco Kuniger, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thanks for having me. Marco, tell us your story about how you learned about lean. So uh, let me give you a little bit of a backstory here. Um, 2018, uh, right in January, I started working for one of the biggest food delivery companies in Europe back then. And I was opening a hub for our delivery logistics. So we would have e-bike couriers coming to the hub, pick up their bikes, and then leaving from there for their shifts, delivering food, and then coming back at the hub. And then we would close down the office and begin the next day. And for a time being, it went really well, uh, just scaling up very little. So the very first day we only had nine orders uh, of which four of us was taken from our crew just because we we did not have any market awareness really so this changed over time and I, after month six or something it started really booming um, and i'm talking about 100 percent, 200 300 and during covid even sometimes 400 percent growth and um, before that covid period luckily our company decided because of the hyper growth to um, provide lean green belts to city operations managers so i met with a bunch of city operations managers from portugal poland and switzerland which were all in my team um and we had a like i think four days of green belt sessions there and also uh, our exams and then later on we would have a project that we would then implement on companies processes and this is how i got introduced to lean and started actually liking it in a way that's that's great so how did you get into the food delivery business what's your background before that oh yeah that's actually not at all my background because uh, i started (laughs) sports culture and event management and um the the best of that experience was that i was able to do a semester abroad in bangkok and i tried to stay in asia in bangkok but i didn't manage so i had the luck to I'll be working as an assistant F&B manager at a golf estate in Myanmar, which was kind of paradox because it's a super poor country and uh, you would be driving to a golf estate every morning with 18 holes and um, estate buildings there. And it was just very weird for me. And um, within this time, I really decided I wanted to be helping people, but I just didn't know how yet. It just felt like with events, I can actually make people happy and therefore I'm also helping them somehow, right? I, I would be fulfilling needs for people um, to be entertained. Um, But it wasn't so easy when I came back and after after I defended my bachelor's thesis to actually find a job in that industry because 
it's actually very small and there's limited jobs available and especially well-paying ones are very scarce so I was uh, and, it's, and so so that's that's uh that's event management you're talking about that's uh this yeah this exactly. small industry yeah oh I, I, interesting i didn't know that and luckily um instead of going to my bachelor's party um and taking my diploma i went to a snowboard judging clinic where i met a guy who was hosting the seminar who was born in the same slovenian town as me in maribor and he told me that was he was planning to organize a skateboard world cup in that uh, in the austrian city of graz which was coincidentally the one that my back then girlfriend lived in and things just fell into place after a few months of trying to get a job and not thinking of him really uh, i actually reached out to him and asked him if he had a job and he was like yeah actually i do and then i went to graz and together we organized the skateboard world cup for three years in a row and during the end of the second year um i was going on a second season of um of a a montage tour basically with a live scoring company who provides the live scoring and judging and as well as tv solutions for um, and uh, olympic events so we went all over the world um, to just have judging solutions for snowboarding events or for free skiing and i had a great time because my skateboarding job was only in the summer and this i could do in the winter and then i would be coming back uh, to the skateboarding event but obviously this was not really sustainable especially if you want to live in a relationship and settle down that kind of lifestyle is not very very well supported and luckily enough uh, during my studies uh, we had a, um, a lecturer who who told us about linkedin and how um how much of use it could be for us and actually i really cured my linkedin profile at all times and apparently it got noticed because a recruiter from that food delivery company um messaged me and asked me if i was interested in a job and i said yes and this is how it went well that's so that that is that is really a great story and it, and it does go to show the power of social media right that that uh it, it is important especially now to be on social media and to to be where people can find you right so tell tell me about the social the, i'm sorry the the um the food delivery company so in, in the US, we, we have these food delivery companies that uh, because it's the US, you know, that they're, they're um, mostly uh, cars, right? So, so somebody gets an order on an app, they go to a restaurant or a shop and they pick up the food and they bring it to somebody's house. Um, you, you're or your company sounds like it's it's more focused on e-bikes, which is fantastic. Does that work the same way with is with ordering through an app? Uh, in general, the company has uh, both systems. So in uh, we're working in UK where there's car drivers or in Germany where there's a long history of car delivery. But mm -hmm. um, they just in, I think, 2014, 15, they started switching um, to be more sustainable and uh, since i've been on board since 2018 in austria we've only ever rolled out with bikes with e-bikes in the first place and then later on with uh bikes that the couriers could bring like provide on their own we would call them remote couriers who can start from home instead of like mm -hmm. a hub courier who, who would have to come to the hub to pick up his e-bike um get his bag 
his backpack and um, just go on the road and the remote driver drives from home. But in general, yes, it's the very same principle. We have an app um, and the driver just has their account in there and they get the notifications for the delivery pickup and they get maneuvered from address to address. And then at the end of the shift, they bring the bike back. Right. All right. So you set it out with four orders or 10 orders, whatever it was, and four of them were for you all. Right. And now it starts to get bigger and bigger and COVID hits and everybody's stuck at home and they want food. Right. They're, they're tired of cooking for themselves. Um, so what was it like dealing with that kind of explosive growth? Terrible, to be honest. It was, it was terrible. Mean, it was it was exciting, um, but also I mean extremely frustrating because there was, I mean we're talking about 200, 300 percent of growth after um, a short time of absolute standstill, because in the beginning of the first lockdown, it wasn't so sure so sure what the restaurants would do, so at first they closed down because the costs of upholding the business only for delivery seemed too high for them, so it was. It took a few months of time until they actually understood and were allowed to make business out of it. And when that started, it really kicked off and we just needed to hire a lot more people. Everything got incredibly messy. And I was, I think, the only green belt in Austria back then. Um, oh, my and goodness. Then, and slowly also, I mean, the company did realize the potential of lean and continuous improvement very early on. But what they did is to try and centralize as much as possible because the growth seemed to get a bit out of hand and um, the the management in Amsterdam felt like they were not able to um, control the cost or also to support well enough. So they started this continuous improvement department, which was supposed to then help us standardize processes. And right. that proved to be very difficult, especially in a, in a time of still hyper growth. Um, there were a lot of mandates coming from the top to implement processes, which turned out to be a lot of work from people who have not really had the understanding of operations and they didn't really understand our priorities. So there was not an organic development of processes or the, the improvement of those, but it was mandated. And this, yeah, actually led to a lot of struggles and um, to a point where our lean department is still not really doing lean work, but they are misused as project managers for some um, from time to time. They're writing a lot of SOPs and yeah, we're still not able to properly have that Kaizen mindset and that lean mindset with, where we're trying to eliminate waste and making communication short. It's not yet very well established, but the company is working very well on giving more and more people the opportunity to become green belts. And I think um, it's incredibly useful. That, that, you know, that is such a, I think it's actually a really typical story, right? That when, when an organization realizes how important process is, right? Um, there, is, there is frequently this sense, well, we need to standardize. And, you know, sometimes that, that direction comes from the top of the organization. And, um, and as you said, when those processes are 
you know, you try to apply them to a local situation, they don't always fit. In fact, it would be surprised if they did fit, right? Because, you know, what you what one particular town looks like, what, you know, what time of day people order, where they order from, you know, how big the orders are, it's going to be different from, from somewhere else and, and who your employees are. So, the, I mean, the, so there's that on the ground variety, but on, you know, but, but, Leadership knows the importance of having the standards. So, but you're on the ground, right? So you're seeing it, you're seeing it from the other direction, right? This this is coming to us. And um, tell me about, about writing process. What have you learned in doing this about writing process and writing process in such a way, SOPs in such a way that people um, can understand them? What, what are some of your learnings from doing that? So in my opinion, SOPs are still one of our biggest topics, um, especially uh-huh. uh, the ones that are coming from the top. A, f- a colleague of mine analyzed it, uh, and he said that basically less than 30% are actually valuable content, but most of it is actually just the layout and the information, etc. But the actual guidance on how to really do a process from beginning to end is often lacking because it's not being done like i mean the standardized processes that are coming from the top are not being done together with local support but Mm -hmm. it feels like they're just they're explaining a process that they have been working with or they have been inventing but they're not telling it to somebody who has never seen it before so when i did my green belt we were supposed to provide the description of a process to somebody who has never seen it who is like that person should be able to do it blindly more or less just by having every step precisely described, not over-described, but shown in a way that can be executed by everybody. And I think this understanding is just incredibly difficult to implement, especially especially over country borders where we do have the same position, but it's not because labor law is different and people just have throughout their history of working with us develop their own skill set and their own niches. Uh, and the markets sometimes really don't really don't go as close to each other as the management would hope so one sop cannot be rolled out necessarily throughout all of the countries and this should necessarily be the goal whereas i think that we should really see what we can do from of course what we can do centrally is great if we can apply it but i think that the actual standardization should happen on a much smaller much more regional level so especially countries austria has its own particular label that cannot be even compared with the one of uh of holland of the netherlands so a lot of the ideas don't work for us but we can standardize whatever is happening in the different cities throughout throughout austria this should be graspable this is within our charge this is something that really could be improved on a local level to just really standardize 80 percent of the processes within a country within the hubs that are all more or less similar, but still leave some space for individual adaptations. So do you do you think that you could start by standardizing the outcome that you want of a process and leave the decision about how within a country or a region you deliver that outcome um, to the people who are doing it? Would that, would that work better? Definitely, yeah, because it's focusing on the end goal and the the product right. instead of the 
process which can be seen and done from very yeah. various different ways yeah it's uh it's it is i mean it is really hard i i mean i have i've done this in my past um working in a, a multinational company you know trying to write process or develop process that works everywhere so even if people are using for example the same um it tool um the same system the system's the same everywhere but you know the roles uh, you know, what we call a job, what a manager does versus what a manager does in, a, in another company, working hours, you know, expectations for communication, um, even down to expectations for respect. And, you know, what does what is, you know, in, in one place, it may be perfectly all right for someone to go and do something quite different and not tell their manager because there's a certain amount of freedom in another place um, that would be completely against the local culture to do that. You know, so things would need to be checked. You know, um, uh, I've seen where there's been, you know, endless disagreements about whether or not a document needs to be signed, which, you know, in today's day and age, actually physically signing a document is, you know, what does that even mean? I mean, most people, you know, if you can't do it on your phone, this it, is not worth doing. So uh, the technology gets in the way, too. Um, so, so what was the process that you um, that you worked on in your Greenbelt project? So I was trying to remember it. I'm not sure if it's one or two, but I think it was actually to um, automate the recruitment process. So ah. when I started, I really did a lot of actual paperwork as a city uh -huh. operations manager. When I hired people, um, I actually filed out all of their paperwork by hand and then scanned every of the pages. And I think it was like a packet of 18 pages at, at last that I had to scan in for every driver, um, every single one that I hired. And this was then sc scaled like this. We just continued doing that and we've had piles and piles of contracts um lying around and waiting to be sent to our um head headquarters in berlin and um during i think my first year or something we started rolling out something that was called fountain which is a recruitment uh, platform so mm -hmm. our recruiters would work with fountain and we would take the data from there but then we would still have to print it out and sign everything on the spot there you um, go there you go yeah <laughs> exactly but uh luckily fountain started to develop a solution that would allow the data to be automatically imported from uh, that fountain tool into our salesforce like the platform that we were using for accounts so we would actually save a lot on um manual recruiting so recruiting would first of all not be done in every hub but centralized by two or three people that would focus on recruiting for all of the cities only and then we would take more or less the entire hr process so the documentation etc everything out of the local operations hand and put it into the recruiters and uh, driver hr hands and yeah that was a really big process i have to say um it was coming anyways, but it was lucky that I was able to really implement it because it felt like, or it feels like in this company, whenever we make something a green belt project, it gets focused and it gets done. That happens, yes. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, a project involving 
automating a process, which means first of all, identifying the process and then, um, you know, using the tool, when, especially when you have a tool that already probably has some internal um, process um, design in, intrinsic to the tool. To me, that sounds like, um, you know, a very ambitious Greenbelt project. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's maybe a step above, I mean, that's just my opinion, maybe a step above your average Greenbelt. Uh, project, but I, I think it's really important what what you said that, that once once you have identified well this is a project well now somebody's going to care about it getting done and you're not necessarily you're not going to be competing for attention because um, it's going to be really be a goal to get it to get it finished. So what did you learn, Marco, as you did that project? What were you some of your your personal learnings? That even if a project is finished yeah it's not finished <laughs> and it feels like the real work only starts after the implementation ah yeah so 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 wow i mean that's just there's so much in there right i mean um yeah so what, so, what i've experienced for example oh um as local operations we're very good to jump on the solutions to um, start projects and just create an MVP, a minimal, minimal viable product, exactly. yeah. And just yeah. run with it and try to improve it on the go. Um, but we sometimes never really get to a point where it's perfect or it just dies off after a certain time. So what we're doing now is we are guiding those projects, those Greenbelt projects for several weeks or months after the initial implementation to see if it's really working so for example i implemented feedback conversations so that uh, our coordinators would have conversations with the with the drivers more regularly and um, we could have just dropped it on the people with a detailed explanation but we made a call uh, we gave a detailed explanation and we're doing now bi-weekly meetings to get the input of the working process so that we can adapt it on the go in an in a controlled so manner so it sounds like you really are now get that is a continuous improvement activity, right? So so getting that feedback uh, and making changes as a result of the feedback that is doing continuous improvement. So so I think you're moving in that direction. Um, uh, so that's actually that works well for you just to put the MVP or the next generation of the MVP out there as long as you have that that feedback loop, right? And, and you're able to act on on the feedback what what did you learn about change management with people and people changing their behavior so uh, in order to actually start this continuous improvement process uh, on the yeah. feedback conversations we had to fail first so we didn't yeah. do that for i don't know two years after i got my green belt and i wondered how all of these projects that we started were at some point just dropped or never really executed so change is hard change management is difficult and uh, i think this continuous consultation or the feedback loop uh, after the initiation phase is something that is incredibly important in the change management because yeah then, then i think it only starts like changing a process yes of course that's the that's the stab wound basically but it still hurts a lot after actually being stabbed it hurts for quite a long time oh my gosh um, so you know like it's just like it's just a wound that 
that is never really healing if you're not taking care of it properly. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. And I think this is what you do if you just stop communication. And if people then start to complain about the process because they don't have anybody to give feedback to. So I really want um, to focus more on active listening and really engage with the people who are actually dealing with these processes so that we can just change them according to their needs. Yeah, yeah, give them that opportunity to to give their feedback and, and share their ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. So so how different is that from what you were thinking back to when you, you were doing event management and working on these, these big international competitions, which, you know, I guess the competition would happen and then you'd have a long period of time before the next one happened if they if they was if they was seasonal how does this compare because you, you you have work that's happening every day right so um so you have lots of opportunities to observe how does it compare to something that is more seasonal like that or more more big event driven uh, so the skate world cup was one thing because it was a long processing or production period beforehand yeah and not so long one afterhand so you have one peak but when i worked for the live scoring company we would have basically one or two ev events per week with a uh, lot of the same people you know you would be for example on tour with the snowboard and freeski people or on tour with the moguls people and you would go for two three stops in a row and there's a lot of same people so there's always these event crews at site that are preparing and then you're coming in with the operational event crew and you're just putting up everything you're you're tearing it down and everything has to be built up within one or two days and then yeah basically uh, broken down after directly after the event so there is no change management because change is happening constantly uh -huh. um, it's much more problem solving oriented and uh, sometimes you're not finding the root cause because you just don't have the time to go as deep. So you're just mm. fixing it with duct tape. So this is why uh, duct tape and uh, I don't know how you call them, these cables, like these cable binders, you call the them. The bungee in, kind of things. The, these hard plastic ones uh, that people get. Cable ties, with. yeah. Cable, the cable ties, ties, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this is why I think cable ties and duct tape are the most important tools in an event business, because this is how you fix problems. You don't have time to properly fix the root cause of the problem which might be a broken desk you have to fix it some some other way uh, because you don't have the, the time on, on the fly but in the in the world that you're in now it's important right to find the root causes and and uh, reduce the amount of duct tape exactly and not be so jumpy not really uh, do that it's it's the same in life i think uh, or in relationship to not be just jumping on the problem or just you know when somebody's speaking you're already coming up with a solution to their problem and um, people at some point don't react very well to that anymore because sometimes what they need is to do active listening and i think this is what change management also requires is active listening you're hearing everybody out you're understanding that there's a problem you are acknowledging that there needs to be change and then you need to guide them through the change because you are most likely not delivering a perfect product so yeah this is where i think it really begins and you really need to carry through that process and the real optimization what we're all thriving for and the real standardization can only come with time it doesn't doesn't work from the beginning
no, no, you're so you're so right about that. Um, and I think it's so important what you're saying about active listening as part of of change management of change leadership, um, because uh, you know I think. I, I always say to people, people say, well, you know, people hate change. And I don't think people hate change. Uh, I mean, people get married, they move, they get a new job. Um, you know, people create change in their lives all, all the time, right? But what people don't like is change that is either not good for them personally or that they have no control over. And sometimes you are in a situation with a new process where what you are going to be delivering will be seen by the people as not being good for them because, you know, for whatever reason. And, um, you know, that they didn't have that much opportunity when it was created to have input into. Um, and and so I, I think what you're saying about the active listening is so critical, right? Because people have got to have a chance to tell you, hey, this is horrible. You know, it's really awful. I don't like it. I have to come into work earlier or I have to do this or I have to do that. Um, and uh, that's, I think, historically, we haven't been allowed to do that at work all that much. You know, we do that. We do that in the pub afterwards. Right. We, we don't do it um, in front of our manager. So when you when you go into this active listening mode with the people who are working for you, Marco, when you started to do that, were people shy? Were people afraid to tell you? Or were they very direct? Hey, Marco, I've, I've got an earful for you. I think I've always been very open. Uh, especially yeah. as a city operations manager, I was much too open. I was very bad with you. Were, you were too open? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I was absolutely letting people much too close. Um, just simply because we were working together every, for example, when I opened the hub, I worked 30 days straight. I did office shifts in the morning and uh, I ran the hub until 11 o'clock at night in the evening. So it was because we just started with me and then later yeah. on, I would get a crew. But like this day never stops. You're delivering. We are not delivering 24 seven, but we're delivering seven days a week and until 11 o'clock at night. So especially in the beginning, you feel responsible for everything. Yeah. And so you build more closer connections, um, but this is also why everybody was always, or at least to a good extent, very open with me. And I would provoke openness by also showing my capabilities to fail by how I deal with failure and how I hold myself accountable. And I think once people see that you are putting yourself on the line for them or that you are admitting to mistakes, um, it becomes a much different conversation, much more open. That's that's really beautiful. And um, it's really very good advice for anyone to let people see you fail and, and talk about your failures and talk about what's hard for you, which is hard for some people to do. It's not, it's not easy for everyone to be as open as, as you are, but um, I think it's a really, it's a very good example. Marco, what do you what do you think is next? What do you what do you what where do you want to go with this knowledge um, in the work that you're doing or elsewhere? So I was just uh, talking to um, one of my direct reports from the city I'm living in, Innsbruck, yeah. today, and I really tried to convince him to go for the green belt because uh -huh. I really think it's so valuable. 
And I was just talking to my partner who was also in that green belt uh, school with me in the same day. Um, and, and she was asking me like, what you're, you're doing a lean podcast. What do you know about lean? Like what is five S and I, I failed to, to say that. And I was like, well, I maybe not, uh, I maybe don't know all of the abbreviations anymore, but I've been really trying to live by a Kaizen mindset and uh, really try to eliminate waste and really try to see how to make all people all involved parties in the process somewhat happy um, and make more efficient processes for yeah. them to save them time because this is my job as a manager i need to make i need to create a workable working environment and the less time they need in lengthy processes um, the more time they have for the pleasure part where they can actually focus on people so yeah i will continue to push for uh, the lean agenda but i will also try to um, make our um, management understand that the way that we've been applying the lean department or the continuous improvement department is not the way that it was meant to be deployed. So yeah, striving for change constantly. Yeah, I think, I mean, you have really, I think, found the heart of it. I always say on this podcast, you know, we talk about the edges of lean, but it really, it comes back to the heart of it. And the heart of it is, and you just said it so beautifully, Marco, that for the for managers, that you are creating that environment where it is great to work. It's a great place to work. And because it's a great place to work, there is time to, to improve. And people are getting the skills, like you were saying to your employee, are getting the skills to learn how to improve. So I think you've really found the heart of it. And whether or not you know every single tool is, is not as important as, um, as, you know, understanding that, that as a manager, this is your job. This is the thing that you should be improving in yourself every day, right? Um, because, because, um, I think the tool, something like 5S, is actually, it's a countermeasure, right? 5S is a countermeasure that was developed in order to solve a problem of an operator not being able to find the tool they needed at the time that they needed the tool and the tool being ready to use, right? 5S is therefore a countermeasure to doing that. That doesn't mean necessarily mean that 5S is the right thing for you to do in your organization today, because you may have a problem that is not solved by 5S, right? Uh, the most important problem that you're facing may not be a, a problem for which 5S is a countermeasure. If it is, you'll figure it out because you know what to do. P people will eventually say, hey, it would be great if this thing I need was always here and it was always clean and it was always ready to go. That's 5S, right? They'll figure it out when you give them the time to do it. So you would, you would, I, I just want to affirm what you're doing. You are, you're headed down the right path and you are doing really, really great work and um, keep it up, Marco. So now I'm going to ask you, what would be your one piece of advice for a young person starting out in their career? I knew that you were going to ask this question. You knew but, I was going to ask that question. But I yeah. just changed my, my opinion because I wasn't really sure yesterday. But I think it's really about like, listening more and talking less or talk less and listen more, um, especially in that continuous improvement environment. Because if you do a root cause analysis, you see how deep these causes are sometimes or how much they vary from what we're actually expecting and i think a root cause analysis is somewhat also 
active listening. You're just really trying to understand more. You're just trying, uh, trying to understand more than just the surface, just the syntax of what is being said, but the actual meaning. And for that to, to sink in, we need more time. And we're often not giving us the time to really process something because we're so fast to reply. And yeah. by listening more, just biting your tongue one or the other time more, um, I think a lot would be improved in human communication. That's great. So listen more. And that is a that is a really good insight. I really I appreciate that insight. Thank you. About the connection between active listening and really getting to root cause. Uh, because especially in the cases that you're talking about, the root, where root cause may not be caused by a piece of equipment, it may be something going on with people, you're not going to hear that right away. You More listenings can only help with that. That is really good advice. Thank you, Marco Koeniger. Marco, if people want to talk to you more about this, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn, just under my name, and uh, okay. you, will pro you will have the profile picture that I have on LinkedIn um, Great. in your description. So um, it will be easy to identify me. Other than that, I do have a website that is not very well maintained, but I'm really trying to like, do that from now on, which is leading-better-lives.com. So leading-better-lives.com. And uh, on Instagram, my name currently still is Travelbeards. So you can always hit me up there. Travelbeards on, on Instagram. Exactly. Okay, cool. Uh, my, my podcast is basically uh, findable on all kinds of platforms. Uh, most people use Spotify and it's called Leading Better Lives in which I talk about self-development, empathetic leadership. And I'm also uh, now starting to have guests on and also talk a bit about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and a little bit of a side gig. That, that's, that's, that's great. So um, for those of you who are listening, if you are itching to be a podcast guest, um, check out um, Marco's podcast or just listen to his podcast. Um, so and uh, yeah, yeah, keep it up, Marco. I, I'm looking forward to seeing where you go and what you do and, and how you change the world for the rest of us. So thank you very much for traveling with me to the edges of lean. Thank you for having me on, Bella. It was a really pleasure. This is Bella Engelbrecht, and I'd like to thank Marco Koenigke for being my guest on the Edges of Lean. How have your lean skills helped you when you're in a growth situation? What has made the difference for you? Reach out to me or Marco and start a conversation. Find Marco on LinkedIn or at leading-better-lives.com. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com and tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn and check out my friends in the lean communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The edges of lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from podcasting. This is a Lean for Humans production.